The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. They knew what they believed, and they knew what the governmental authorities who had arrested them believed. And they knew that the threats of those authorities were not idle threats. They knew that from experience. And the message came through to them loud and clear. Do not continue to publicly speak of this Jesus or else. They heard that. And then they were released. And they went home, went back to their friends, and they gathered them together and they told them everything that had happened. They recounted all the details to them. And then those two church leaders, Apostles Peter and John, gathered them together, opened up their prayer book, and led the people to lift their hands and their voices and their hearts to heaven. And they cried out, Oh, Sovereign Lord, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They turned to Psalm 2. In the face of great challenge, desperation, fear, hardship, they turned there and they found in that text comfort and guidance. And that same comfort and guidance is there in that text for the people of God today. This morning's passage, Psalm 2, calls out to us and it gives us hope points us in the right direction and at the same time it also calls out in warning to those who have not yet heeded the message of Christ and who from God's perspective are still in rebellion against him and against his anointed one the king that he has set up and enthroned in Zion established as king it calls out submit to him now for your blessing. Last week we began a new series in the book of the Psalms. We did Psalm 1 last week and this morning we turn to Psalm 2. The second of that two-part introduction that I talked about, Psalm 1 and 2 are paired together to introduce the whole Psalter. We saw Psalm 1 emphasizing the importance of meditating on the instruction of the Lord and internalizing it and taking it in and being changed by it as the key to the life of blessedness. It's the first, first word of the whole psalm book, blessed, that is happy, glad in heart, and has the effect of saying when you open up the book, reader, do you want to live the blessed, happy, glad-hearted life? Then fix your heart on the instruction of the Lord. Take it in and be changed by it. Let it lead you to God himself. Psalm 1. And then Psalm 2, text this morning, adds on to that and introduces a second major theme of the whole psalm book, the Davidic king. The king in the line of David. And it ties that king to the same concept of blessedness. The very last verse of Psalm 2, is surely said, has the same word blessedness in it. And has the effect of as you close out the introduction, it says, reader, do you want the life of blessedness? Then attach yourself to this Davidic king. Fasten your heart onto him. So you've got Psalm 1. Blessedness comes from, the happy life comes from 
being attached to the instruction of the Lord. Psalm 2, at the end, blessedness comes from being attached to the anointed of the Lord, his king. Bookends of this introduction. And then those two themes run all through the psalm book. So Psalm 2 is centered on God's king. And the main point of the psalm, let me summarize it here like this. The Lord has established his king. The Lord has established his king, so we must submit to him for our joy. We must. He has set him up. He has enthroned him. He has given him all authority and power over everything, everywhere. God has established his king, and so we must each individually must submit our lives to him if we hope to find joy in this life and in the next. There is no second option. God has made one king, only one, and he has set him up, and that king will have a kingdom that is utterly free of any rebellion whatsoever, one way or another. So it calls out to us, submit to him now and find your joy. It's the main point of Psalm 2. And we'll see that argument developed in three steps. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. But first let me read Psalm 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The Word of the Lord. The first step of this psalm's argument is a negative one. It's found in verses 1 to 3. The nations and the peoples, the kings and the rulers are all the subject here. It's just another way of talking about the wicked that are coming down, being carried down from Psalm 1. It's the same people. These are the enemies of God in all shapes and sizes. And all these folks together have one basic attitude. They have one common stance. It can be observed here in this passage. The first step, rampant Rebellion. Might summarize it by saying, rebellion against the Lord is rampant. Simple sentence. It's everywhere. It's common. The basic stance and attitude of human beings. 
It's not pretty, but it's right here. Notice the variety of people included in these verses. Verse 1, it's the nations who rage, the peoples who plot. Verse 2, it's the kings and the rulers. All these phrases are roughly parallel to one another. It's a poetic device of saying the same thing from a slightly different angle. We're not meant to think that the rulers are different than kings or that plotting is different than taking counsel together. It's all kind of the same thing presented in a slightly different way four different times to try to catch us. And obviously what he's trying to get at is not nice. It's not gentle and pretty. It's pretty blunt. Fallen humanity has a common singular purpose. The people the world over have finally found something they can agree on. Verse 3. All of those who are in rebellion, all these rulers and nations and peoples, they link arms together and they say, we have one idea here that we all agree on. Let us cast off and break their bonds and their cords. Let us get rid of the Lord's authority and control over us. They're one agenda. And the text pictures all of humanity as bent on this. It is their goal. It's not something that would be nice if it happened maybe incidentally or accidentally. The peoples of the world set their minds to figuring out ways to breaking these divine shackles, to separate themselves from His authority. They plot and they discuss. They are emotionally engaged in it. The word raging there, in tumult. It's the idea of a sea that's tossing and turning. So people are inside. They are emotionally committed to this. It doesn't say exactly how they're doing it. But it makes the nature of this rebellion pretty clear. It's not incidental. It is deliberate. And it's universal. And right here at this point, I imagine that some people will say to me, you know, whoa, hold on a second. Okay, I'm not a Christian, or my friend's not a Christian, but just a second there, I'm not bent on raging against God. I don't rage against anybody. I'm a pretty calm person. Even when I get cut off in traffic, I'm not a rager. And I certainly wouldn't call myself set or standing against the Lord. I'm pretty religious. I'm not a Christian, but I, but I follow God. I love Him. I pursue my own different religion or, or maybe my own ethical philosophy of life. I certainly don't hate God. What are you talking about? Is that true? Maybe that's how you think about yourself or, or maybe a friend of yours. Let me briefly respond by drawing our attention to something. The text is not saying that people are unreligious or irreligious. The rebellion is against someone in particular. Notice at the end of verse 2 and on to verse 3, they're taking counsel together against the Lord and His anointed one. The two together. Verse 3, notice the plural, their, their bonds, their cords. These two together have bonds and cords. They are an inseparable pair. And it is the Lord, capital letters, because it's a proper noun. It's His name. It's not just the higher power out there. It's the Lord of the Bible, defined in these pages. Makes very clear who He is. And so it's not possible to say, I pursue some other God, just not the Lord of the Bible, because this Lord says He's the only Lord. And He's joined in tandem with this anointed one. So it's also not possible to say, I do pursue this Lord of the Bible, but not that anointed one. 
that Messiah, that Christ. I want nothing to do with him, but I do like the Lord of the Bible. Can't do that either. You can't separate these two. They're together. What the text is saying then is not that people are unreligious. It's saying that people are set in rejecting, in turning away from, in resisting the will of the God of the Bible and his Messiah together. And that includes everybody, all of us, fallen, all of us before we're redeemed, all of us who are not genuine Christians. Sometimes this is pretty obvious. It's really clear, violent even. Like the persecution of the church or murdering of Christians or outlawing of Christianity happens in some places at some times. But a lot of other times, it's, it's much more passive, like when a person just doesn't believe the gospel, but is otherwise pretty polite about it. Even in those situations, and please hear me on this, even in that situation of the polite rejection, that situation also is revealing a hardened heart. If that's you or if that's your friend, realize that you're still engaging with this message about the Bible and it's God and saying no to it, even if you do so politely. You're still standing against him. You're still in these verses. I realize that all is a little bit in your face. That's what the text is saying. And I need to point out to you, that I don't say this to you to, to be triumphant about it or, or, or to brag or something, but I need to say to you that that is not the way of blessedness. Don't go down that path. It only leads to your misery. It leads you away from the only God that there is. Heed this. Keep reading, keep listening here because there is a strong warning coming up and at the end, there is a neat hope. But you've got to keep listening all the way to the end. Keep engaged, I plead with you. But I realize that for most of us here, we, we aren't personally committed any longer to verses 1 through 3. We've been saved, we've been taken out of that. So what does it have to say to us? I realize that it is in the prayer book of the people of God. It's saying something. It's speaking to us in some way. But how? Well, I notice something about how this flows right out of Psalm 1. Put yourself as the reader who opens up the psalm book and you read Psalm 1. And what do you get there about the wicked? The wicked are like chaff. They are blown away. And the righteous prosper. We, the people of God, are like the tree flourishing by water. This is great. And then you're hauled before the Sanhedrin and told that you will be killed if you continue to follow this Jesus. How does that match with Psalm 1? Well, Psalm 2 steps in right there and says, Yes, that is the case. The righteous do prosper. The wicked are like chaff. However, right now, the wicked do have their day. They do rage and plot and stand against the Lord. That is the case. And rest assured, God knows that he is in charge of it. That's how they read that in Acts chapter 4. They read it and they saw in the question why and the plotting in vain, they saw the Lord saying, yes, this is the case, but let me keep pointing you down to verse 4 and following. This is vain plotting. This is resisting my will, but it will not triumph. We can look at that and we can trust it. We can find boldness there in it like they did. 
God is in charge. He reigns over this world. Yes, the wicked have their day right now. But take heart. He will overcome them. He has established a king. It's the second main point. The second step of the argument. Verses 4 and following. The basic stance of rebellion exists the world over. Throughout all the time, it's displayed in the 10,000 other religions of the world. Sometimes it's very clear and violent in its attack, and sometimes it's pretty subtle and nice. But the question arises, with all of this assault, will this rebellion not triumph? And the second step of the argument thunders out to us, no. It will not triumph, because the Lord's anointed king will put down all such rebellion. It's the second point. The Lord's anointed king will decisively bring an end to all of this rampant rebellion. It will not and it cannot triumph because he has established a king. He has set him up. Verse 4, the scene shifts from the dens and council rooms of the rebels on earth to the throne room of the one who sits in heaven. The one who made everything and he looks down at his creation at the little creatures that he himself formed. He sees all that they do. He sees them as as they meet together and he's present with them. He hears all their plotting and all their counsels. He knows every one of the intentions of their hearts and he sees them in tumult against him. He knows all of that. He sees the rebellion as it is hatched and as it grows. He looks at it and he laughs. Not a, a humorous chuckle. The word is pointing towards a laugh of contempt. He holds them in derision, the text says, scoffing at them. We often think of the Lord as love. God is love. That's true. But He is not only love, He is also just, and He is holy. And he looks down and he takes in and he understands this rebellion and he holds it in derision. His wrath, his fury is raised here. He speaks to them in furious wrath, making a statement that is meant to crush all who would rebel. You rebel against me, he thunders. But I have done something that will indeed stand and bring you down. I have set up my anointed one. I have enthroned my king. Originally he's talking about King David, set up to rule in Jerusalem. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is enthroned in Jerusalem in the midst of my people. I have made a covenant with him to uphold him. No attack against him will succeed. Any fight you pick with him, you pick with me, says the Lord. Tell them, David. Tell them what I have said. And then the king begins to speak in verse 7. And those who ruled after him in his line, according to the covenant, also said this. Historically, we don't know this for sure. It's possible that this was read at coronation ceremonies of successive kings. You can kind of see that, can't you? Someone would read the first few verses and then the newly enthroned king would join in at verse 7 and he would say, The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
That is, you are the one uniquely identified with me. You are my son. You're the one after me, like me, who follows me. I am the ruler. You are my ruler. My son. It's a term of identification. You are my son. I have begotten you. That is, I have brought you forth. That's what that word means, to either birth or to bring out and present. And obviously, physically birthing is not in view here in this context. I have brought you forth before all the peoples to see, to see that I set you up now here on my throne. I bring you out to display you and to manifest this unique relationship that I have with you as my king. So he says to everybody, Behold the king, the one that I have selected and anointed and established. Look at him and be terrified. Look at him and be terrified, for all he has to do is ask me, and I will give him utter dominion over everything. The kings that are in rebellion are still in view here. I'm going to give him dominion over you if he just asks me. He says to David, pray to me and ask, and I will establish your rule, not just here in Jerusalem. I will give you more than just secure borders around Israel. I'll give you everything, everyone, everywhere. I'll give you all the nations from the great river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. They will become your possession. This land here is too small for you, you great king. It's insufficient for you, my anointed one. I'll give you everything. I will make you march forth to conquer. All who now rebel against you, you will dash them to pieces with a rod of iron striking a clay pot. They'll all be left in shards and dust. It is a mighty, conquering statement. You are my chosen one, anointed to reign on Zion amidst my people, promised to reign on every inch of the earth, promised to triumph and glory over those who resist you and rebel. So take heed, you rebels. Be terrified. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you with the coming of my anointed son. The king will put down all rebellion everywhere. There is a lot of heat here, not just in this room right now. There's a lot of heat in this passage. I'm not exaggerating it. When he uses words like wrath and fury, when he talks about taking a rod and smashing things, there's no way to put a gentle spin on that. This is brute force dominion. It's a warning of wrath and fury coming at the hand of the king. And it is a great promise made to that king, David, and those sons in the line of David. Though enemies surround you all around, I will uphold you and give them all into your hands. In fact, I will give you all of the earth your kingdom will cover the globe. What a promise made to the Lord's anointed one. It's a great hope. And so, for years on end, centuries on end, the people of Israel looked for its fulfillment. And the princes of David's house were enthroned. Generation upon generation they came and they sat and they spoke forth. Today the Lord says to me, you are my son, I have begotten you. Ask and I'll give you everything. They said that. They spoke that promise. 
and it fell to their feet as dust because it never happened. These kings themselves, anointed with oil, seated upon the throne of David in Zion, they never received the nations. They never broke the back of this great rebellion. They, in fact, joined it. Amazing. Israel joined with them too, by and large. And it leaves a huge question mark hanging in history. This is a marvelous promise, but is that all? Is that all we were to expect, or is there more to come? Are these kings feeble in their obedience, sometimes doing right, most of the time doing wrong? Are these kings all who were to come, or is there another one coming? Who is this psalm about? You probably already know. The clues are everywhere, and it's all over the New Testament as well. Psalm 2 is frequently quoted. Look at it again, verse 2. The Lord and His anointed, His Messiah, His Christ. We can't say that and not think of someone in particular. The Christ who's been set up as King in Zion. The King on God's holy hill. The Christ, God's one and only begotten Son. Who are we talking about here? The Son who possesses all the nations. The Son who breaks and rules with the rod of iron. Who is this? As glorious as David's reign was, he was not all of this. Never was. Nor were any of his sons. None of his descendants. Until one came who claimed to be uniquely the Son of God. The Son of God. Claimed God as his Father, which everybody understood was making them equal. It was a different claim than all the kings had made before. He claimed to be the eternally existent I Am. That is, the Lord. All those capital letters here in this text. He claimed to be that. To have known personally, 2,500 years before, Moses and Abraham. He claimed to be the one who had the authority to forgive sin. He displayed the power to heal disease, raise the dead, and subjugate the demonic. He claimed all of that, and then one glorious Sunday morning, all of these claims were vindicated. They were validated as in power. He was brought forth from the grave alive. The argument of Romans 1. David died and is buried. But this true son could not be held by death because he is Lord over it as well. Vindicated by the Father, brought forth from the grave and shown to be the Son. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God. Period. The unique Son. God in the flesh, brought forth for us all to behold. Begotten, but not made. Creator in flesh, not creation. Eternally existing. Come now enthroned on Zion, reigning in the hearts of His people, beginning to spread His kingdom over all the globe. He spreads that now by changing individual hearts, drawing us to Him, 
giving individuals new life. He holds out now nail-pierced palms offering peace to all who will come by faith. That's his stance towards us now, and that's how he's spreading his kingdom. But this psalm is assuring us that that will change. That will change. It will take on a new dimension when he comes back and he puts down all rebellion everywhere. The nail-pierced palm will turn and will grasp a rod of iron and he will raise it high and strike all those who remain in rebellion. It will happen, for sure. Behold this Christ. Take heart in him if you are already his child by faith. The early church read this psalm and it took great courage in it. As I said, the rebellion will not succeed. We can have hope here. We can have boldness here. That's what they prayed for. We can know that He is going to triumph over all things. We see a strong Christ here, ready to intervene and wage war on behalf of His hard-pressed people. We're to take heart from that. But the focus is about to turn back to those who are still in rebellion. They've never actually left the picture, but they're going to come back front and center here in the next few verses. And it says to those who are in rebellion, be warned. Look, this is a deadly serious thing. It's really clear here. There are many things in life in which preferences are allowed. We can debate the pros and cons of something or some choice or some idea, but this is not one of them. It's presented here in stark language. Not because I say so, but because the text says so. God has told us so that we'll know now before it's too late. Heed this for your own good. Respond appropriately to it. That's the third stage in the argument, the response. How should we respond? Particularly if we find ourselves still set against this Lord of the Bible and His Christ. It's found in verses 10 to 12. How do we respond? It's the third step. Simple again. Repent and seek refuge in Jesus. Repent and seek refuge in Jesus. Verse 10 introduces a conclusion. Given that Jesus the Son put an end to all rebellion, how should we respond? O King, O rulers, be wise. Think about this carefully right now. You've just been traveling down a path or a road at night, and you've come to a sign that says, Bridge out. Stop and think about this for a second. You don't know where the bridge was, you don't know if you'll be able to stop in time before you come to it. It could just be that you won't stop in time. And as you plunge over the edge into the river, you will have wished you'd stop right now and thought about this. Take heed. The only appropriate response is to repent, to turn around. That's what the word means. To turn, to turn away from rejecting the Lord and turn towards accepting Him embracing Him in humble, 
reverent submission. That's what's required of us. It's hard to do, though, isn't it? It's very easy to, to listen to this, to read this and say, man, if that's the kind of God that the Lord is, pretty angry, it seems, and pretty pushy. He's not allowing two ways. He doesn't leave me any choice. He says, it's my way only. And otherwise, you meet with destruction. If that's the kind of God there in the Bible, then I don't want anything to do with that. It's pretty easy to have that response. Please, I hope that you see that is exactly the attitude of verse 3. Exactly. I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. I'd rather have something to do with the God that I imagine. This God that I shape to be this sort of person, this sort of being. May God give you grace to open your eyes and see, don't go down that path, please. It only leads to destruction. That's really clear in all of the language of this passage about wrath and fury and breaking. It's clear here in verse 12 where it says, His anger may flare and you may perish. There's no way to be nice about that. Perishing. It's clear. There is something to be fled from, to be avoided, to be run, to flee away from, to run from. The Lord's judgment, it's real. He's using a stick here. You can make an animal to move forward by striking him with a stick in the back so he flees away from the thing that hurts. It's okay if God uses that. He wants you to beware of something that will hurt you. It's a stick to flee away from. But there's also, I said there was some hope here in this passage, and there is. There's also a carrot to run towards. Farmers could also get animals to move forward by hanging something enticing in front of them to draw them to it. There's some hope here as well. Don't, get it, don't lose it. Don't miss it in the midst of what is the dominant theme here, the judgment. The two sides of the same coin, really. To flee from the wrath of God is to flee towards this hope. Now, the coin is sitting face up, the, the wrath and the judgment is up, but look under the coin with me for just a second. It's here in these last couple of verses. Look at verse 11. There are imperatives here. That means commands. Commands to us. Serve with fear and parallel to it. Another command, rejoice with trembling. As I said earlier about those parallel statements, it's the poet's way of saying similar things with a little bit different emphasis to maybe catch your attention one way or the other. These two things are roughly parallel to one another. Now the second half of both of those phrases, fear and trembling, you can see how they're easily related. Pretty clearly the same basic idea. But the first part of the phrase is also related, and that's more interesting. Serve and rejoice. Command, serve. Command, rejoice. Back in verse 3, all the rebels had been saying, let us get away from this God so that we can go off and do what we want and have a happy life and enjoy things. Well, God's not against you enjoying things. He commands it. Rejoice. 
He's also going to talk about blessedness here in just a minute. God is fully in favor of us experiencing a joy-filled, happy, glad-hearted life. He wants that. He commands it, actually. But he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows himself far better than we know him. And he is well aware that rejoicing and serving him that is, rejoicing and being wholly committed to following and obeying and adhering to Him, rejoicing and living under His bonds and His cords, rejoicing and living fully committed to the instruction of the Lord, meditated on day and night, rejoicing and all of those things are very, very closely related. He knows that. We don't. So he tells us. And he tells us, pursue me. Because when you pursue a life lived in service to me, bound to me, obeying me, you will find your joy. Because you'll find me. Remember this from last week? We looked at another psalm that says, Oh God, send out your light and your truth. Those are his commands. Because we walked through it, they'll lead me to you. God, my exceeding joy. He knows that, and so he tells us. The way to happiness, the way to blessedness, is not in throwing off the Lord's bonds and fleeing from him, being freed from him. That path leads to destruction. The way to happiness and joy and blessedness is to cinch yourself up tight to him. Serve him with all you are. Heed his commands, internalize them, be changed by them. Now certainly there's a way to serve him grudgingly. It's not what I'm talking about. Serve him with a heart that is inclined towards him. More could be said about that. But please notice, where the psalm ends is the statement of blessedness. There's a lot of wrath in this psalm. A lot of promise of destruction coming. But at the end, what it says is, hide under his wings and find happiness. Seek refuge in him. Serve him to your joy. That's what you'll find there. I love, I love thinking about this. It used to be, when I first became a Christian, the idea that I had was, I've got to either have a happy life or a Christian life. One of the two. It's not true. He says, serve me rejoicing. Find blessedness. What's actually true is I can have a seemingly happy life that ends in misery, now and certainly in the end, or I can have a happy life now. Not superficial not everything going well, not this cheery, always a smile, paste it on my face type of life. I'm talking about joy inside. And it is here offered and commanded even. Rejoice in me. Deal with me as a serious God in trembling and in fear. But rejoice. Here is blessedness offered to you. Find it seeking shelter in the anointed one in the Christ.
message is clear to those who are still separated from him. Come to him by faith. And the message is clear to those of us who have already come to him by faith. He's saying, here's the guidance, here's the path to blessedness. There is much temptation in all of life to look and say, hey, that seems to be going pretty well for them. Right now, the wicked are all in charge. They're the ones sitting on the councils and as kings and rulers. Maybe I should follow them and to be drawn away. There's much temptation for that. No. Blessedness comes in seeking refuge in the Son. There's much temptation to resort to our own abilities and strengths and talents to say, God doesn't seem to have solved this problem right now. I think I'll take a shot at it. No. Continue to hide under his wings. There are a hundred, two hundred different things that we're going through in our lives. Probably not exactly like Acts 4 church was. Lives threatened by the authorities. In all of them, in all of the things we're going through, this passage points us forward. Seek shelter in Christ. That's where you'll find joy. Happiness, gladness, blessedness comes from internalizing and clinging to the instruction of the Lord. Happiness and blessedness comes from clinging to and finding shelter in the anointed of the Lord. Those two themes then run through the Psalter and run through all of life. We must submit to and cling to the Christ for our joy. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.